Every time when I leave it on mute, it doesn't work as well. Everyone always looks back at the sound booth. What are those guys doing? No, no. It's always my fault. Always my fault. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Matt, if I haven't met you yet. And I am Pastor Kenny's backup here in Shakopee. His lackey. Uh, his, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, but I have an opportunity to bring the message today as a part of our series. And what is the name of this series? It is, Jesus said, What? And you got to say it like that. Like those are the rules. Um, or maybe not. Jesus said, what? That's right. And so we're excited to talk to you guys about what we're going to look at in today's passage, which is Luke chapter 14. You can get a jump on this and get to Luke chapter 14 right now. And this sermon series recognizes that there are certain passages within the Gospels that are very well known to us. We hear them again and again. If we're within the church, they become very familiar. As a matter of fact, sometimes even outside the church, they have become familiar. I'm thinking of passages like the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, Jesus' teaching in John 3.16, or or the Great Commandment to love God and love others. Uh, There's a lot of teaching in the gospel that is very familiar to us and is repeated again and again. But in this sermon series, we're looking at those passages that we don't cover that often. That we don't hear a lot of sermons about. That kids in Sunday school don't necessarily hear about because Jesus' teaching in those passages is challenging or hard to understand. Thus the name Jesus said, what? As we look at this. And today, we come to that phrase that elicits the greatest response as you watch that bumper video. Hate your family. Every time that comes on the screen, people go (laughs) and laugh uncomfortably. What? And we're going to look at what Jesus meant by that in the passage that we're going to look at today. Again, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 33. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to instruct people to hate their families. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to say, if you don't hate your family, you can't be a part of his family and be one of his followers. What in the world is he talking about? What is he calling us to? In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, Jesus is asking people who are considering becoming his disciples to do a cost-benefit analysis of becoming his follower. Right? A cost-benefit analysis is something that every business does in order to see if they're going to move forward with a decision. How much is that decision going to cost us? And what are the perceived benefits of that particular decision? And do the benefits outweigh the costs? Sometimes in business, this is done in a very formal way. But in our lives... We do dozens of cost-benefit analyses every day in order to make decisions. Am I going to go out to lunch today after the service? In order to make that decision, I'm going to do a cost-benefit analysis. And if on the benefit side, going out to eat would make my wife happy, then it's worth almost any cost, right? Absolutely. But but that's going to be a cost-benefit analysis that I do in that. When my kids were little, one fall day, I raked up a great big pile of leaves in our front yard. And my kids and a couple of their friends came to me and they asked, can we jump in the leaves? I said, sure, 
Absolutely. Go for it. Have fun. And so they spent a lot of time jumping in the leaves. And what did they do? They spread those leaves back out all over the front yard. Pretty soon I looked out and they were gone. So I went back outside and I raked up all of those leaves into a great big pile again. And no sooner had I finished raking up that giant pile of leaves when my kids and their friends appeared again. They were gone for the entire raking. And somehow by magic appeared as soon as I had that pile back in order. And they asked me, can we jump in the leaves again? And I said, absolutely you can. As long as when you're done, you rake the leaves back into a pile like this and put it all into bags. My kids looked at each other, looked at their friends, and they said to me, Dad, can we ride our bikes? (laughs) Absolutely, right? What what did they do? They did a cost-benefit analysis, and Dad had added new costs to this activity, and when they did the cost-benefit analysis, they said, Oh, no, that's not worth it. No, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. Now, we live in a society where people want all of the benefits without any of the costs. Isn't that the society we live in? People want all of the benefits without any of the costs. And in response to living in that kind of society, there are times when Christians will present the message with all of the benefits, sometimes even with benefits that the Bible doesn't talk about. They'll present all of the benefits but then they will skip over the cost that Jesus has given us in order to be his follower. After all, if the goal is to just get as many people into a room on Sunday morning, or if the goal is to get as many people as possible to just say a prayer, then why wouldn't you try and hook them in by just giving them all of the benefits and really minimizing the costs? Yeah, that may be a short-term commitment, but I'm sure we can work on that. But here's the thing. Jesus hasn't called us to get as many people into a room as possible on a Sunday morning. And he hasn't called us to get as many people to pray a prayer as possible. Jesus has called us to make disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is someone whose lifelong pursuit is to become like their master. Lifelong pursuit is to become like their master. And so Jesus says when someone is considering becoming a disciple... Allow them, no, no, help them to look at the benefits of being my follower and also of all of the costs of being my follower. Because I don't want people who've seen the benefits side only entering into a shallow commitment where we realize, oh, these seeds were planted in shallow soil or these seeds have been choked out by the weeds and worries of this world because they made a shallow commitment based on benefits only without a true understanding of the cost. And so Jesus says, make sure that people are doing a full cost-benefit analysis if they're going to be my followers. Make sure that they count the cost. That is Jesus' desire. And he says it here in the first couple of verses we'll cover. Verses 28 and 29, it says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Let's say I want to build a house. (laughs) Apparently you know me. Yes. (laughs) Let's say I want to hire someone to build a house for me. 
Yes, good correction. And so I, I buy the land and I have plans made and someone comes and digs out an area for a foundation. We lay the foundation and I run out of money. And for the next seven years, my property just sits there with a foundation on it. And I got to live with you because I've got no other place to live at this point. I just got some property with a foundation on it. Is that good decision making? <laughs> right? No, absolutely not. And Jesus says, you guys, when you're going to consider becoming my follower, I want you to consider the benefits, but I also want you to make sure you count the cost because it is those who overcome, those who persevere, who enter into eternal life. He says, count the cost on the front end. He gives another illustration that makes the same point. He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. A king has 10,000 soldiers. Another king is riding upon his land with 20,000 soldiers. And Jesus says that king with 10,000 soldiers is going to deliberate about whether or not they can go out and have victory in that battle. Because if not, then they are going to send a delegation out for terms of peace. When that delegation goes out, is peace going to be free? No, it's going to cost that king dearly. It's going to cost him money. It may cost him people. It's certainly going to cost him land. And so he has to deliberate very seriously about this decision. If you lose that war you and your people may wind up in a dungeon starving to death. If you lose that war as the king, as a sign of submission to a superior king, they may cut off your hands and your feet as a sign of that submission. If you lose that war, thousands of your people may be mounted on pikes or crosses because you have lost that war. Do you take that decision lightly? Absolutely not. You count the cost before you enter in to that kind of commitment. And Jesus says to people who are considering becoming his followers, I don't want you just looking at the blessing side of the ledger. I want to make sure you have fully counted the cost. And in this passage, Jesus gives us the cost. What is the cost that our Lord and Master gives us in this passage? First of all, hate your family. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, some of you are horrified by this. Others in the room are like, I've got that down. <laughs> Hated my family for years, check. Right? I, I don't think that we quite get what Jesus is talking about in that situation. Could the Jesus who said, honor your father and mother, then tell children to hate their parents? Could the Jesus who took young children into his arms and honored them beyond what society did at that time then tell parents to hate their children? Could Jesus who said we are to love our brothers and sisters, to care for those who are close to us, even love and pray for our enemies, then say, you guys, I want you to hate those closest to you? Yes, that's what he just said. But we need to understand, and this is so very important, that when Jesus uses the word hate here, he does not use it in the way that we might most often use the word hate. When we use the word hate, what do we mean? We mean to have a malicious intent towards someone else. 
a desire or even actions that seek to harm someone else. That is not the way that Jesus is using the word hate. Jesus here is using it as a part of a common Hebrew idiom, a a phrase in which he is using some exaggerated or hyperbolic language in order to communicate not malicious intent towards another, but a strong choice of one over another. This way, this idiom of using hate in this manner is actually used 11 different times in the scripture in which it indicates a strong choice of one thing over another. If I lived in this day and age, I might say about my wife and my dog, if I am asked to compare the two, my wife I love, but my dog I hate. Now, do I really hate my dog? No, I love my dog. He's so cute little puppy, jump up into my lap, loves to give me kisses. I, right, I love my dog. But if you ask me to compare my dog to my wife, in that comparison, I might use this Hebrew idiom to say, my wife I love, my dog I hate. In order to say, if you make me choose between the two, it's not even a contest, right? Not even a contest. In the Old Testament, when we read about God, Jacob he loved, but Esau he what? Hated. Right? But Esau, he hated. It doesn't mean that God had malicious intent towards Esau or wanted to harm him or see the worst come to him. What it does mean is that when it came to Jacob and Esau, God made a strong choice for Jacob to be the one of blessing, whose line would be the one of blessing. And that is the way that Jesus is using this idiom here. When he says, hate your family, he is saying, when it comes to a choice between me or your family, You are supposed to make such a strong choice for me that this idiom applies. That is how strong your priority for me is to be, even compared to those closest to you in your life. How do I know that's what Jesus means here? I know that's what he means here because of the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus records this I'm sorry, Matthew records this saying of Jesus in his gospel. Only instead of, like Luke does, giving the word for word of what Jesus said, Matthew gives us his intended meaning in what he said. So when Matthew records this phrase of Jesus in this setting, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke gives us the actual words of Jesus, but Matthew, for the sake of understanding, gives us the meaning of the idiom that Jesus used. But in the midst of this, let's not lose the weight of what Jesus said. It's easy for us in this situation to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean hate, and kind of say, well, he didn't really mean any of it. No, Jesus used this idiom on purpose in order to communicate how strong our choice for him even over our own families, is to be in this life. I love the convicting words. No, I don't love them. They're painful to my heart and challenging to my soul. Uh, But they're such good words that Kent Hughes, pastor at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, for 40 years says here, Some of us love our wives, husbands, and children more than we love God. We miss the mark when we put their development athletically, culturally, artistically, socially, before their spiritual well-being. 
We fall short when we spend more time in the car in one day shuttling them to games and lessons than we do in a month in prayer for their souls. By comparison, our lives reveal that we hate God and love our children disproportionately and that we are not Jesus' disciples. In a Barna survey that I shared here a couple of months ago, churchgoers were asked, what is the number one priority in your life? The survey was anonymous so they could be honest. And among churchgoers, 15%, 1,5% of churchgoers said God was the most important thing in their life. In that same survey, 56% of the people who responded to the survey said family was the most important thing in their life. Right? Do we have a problem with this? Yeah, a big problem. It's a big problem in part because people can love their family more than Jesus and be affirmed for that in the church. Oh, that's great. That's great the way that you're doing those things for your kids, for your parents, for your spouse, whatever it is. We can actually be affirmed for placing Jesus below our family within the culture. Jesus says that is never to be. I have seen and been a part of throwing kids into all kinds of activities that have damaged the ability to genuinely worship Jesus and have taken time and commitment priority over the worship of Jesus. I have seen parents choose their kids and their kids' choices over the commands of Jesus. I have seen kids choose their parents and their parents' way of life over the way of Jesus and what the Scripture teaches. I have seen couples so intent on having a child that when it wasn't supplied for them, they got mad at Jesus and abandoned Jesus because that child was more important to them than their Lord. I have seen people develop this strong idolatry of needing a spouse where getting a husband or wife is the priority of their life instead of fellowship with the Lord. It never turns out well. Jesus wants people to know that following him is to be such a priority that our love for our family pales in comparison to our commitment to him. And so he wants us to understand, cost number one in the ledger of being his follower, hate your family. Cost number two in the ledger of being Jesus' follower, kill your dreams. Kill your dreams. Verse 26 we just read says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, now pick it up here. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, uh, I'm sorry, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to hate your own life? To pick up that cross. What what does that mean, you guys? It doesn't mean that we are supposed to harm ourselves any more than this idea of hate for family means we are supposed to harm and seek the worst for our family, right? We are not supposed to harm and seek the worst for ourselves. So what does it mean? That's right, we are to deny ourselves. We are to kill our own desires and dreams for our life and replace them entirely with the desires and dreams that our king has for us within the kingdom. That's what it means to hate our own life. 
to put away those selfish motivations and desires that perhaps we've had since we were kids. Right? Anyone else had self-oriented dreams and desires when they were a kid? I know for me, when I was a kid, I was pretty sure I was going to be a professional basketball player. Wow. You know, this is a very humbling preaching experience for me. I'm getting mocked and ridiculed right and left here. No, no, you're right to laugh. I wanted to be a professional basketball player because I enjoyed playing basketball. But even more than that, I loved the idea that if I was a professional basketball player, I would be rich and I would have a big house and I would drive a very fancy car. And people would all know my name. And they would all love me. Now, i got to be honest with you. I wasn't very long in the journey before it became clear that my skills and talents were not going to allow me to be a professional basketball player. But my life still could have moved forward, dominated by the dreams and motivations that were behind that, right? What was behind that? Uh, They were idols like comfort, Possessions, prestige, popularity, money. Being a part of the kingdom means no longer moving forward with any of those motivations, those self-oriented motivations, but instead killing all of those. Not just ignoring them. No, killing all of them, doing away with that life, putting it to death, and instead adopting the dreams and motivations that Jesus has for me in this life. The ones that he says are the priority of the kingdom. So that now I seek first the what? The kingdom of God. My priorities, my motivations, my dreams, they're not about self-oriented things. They're about kingdom-oriented things. And that's Jesus' call to us who want to be his disciples. Those dreams, those desires that are based in self, that are based in the idols of this world, those all get swept away entirely. And instead, your dreams, your desires, your motivations, they're all about the king and the kingdom. So he says, if you want to be my follower, kill your dreams. Kill your dreams. Third cost. Oh, sorry. He says that's a daily practice. I forgot about this. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It isn't just a matter of me one time saying, yep, Jesus, I'm your follower. All these things are behind me. Jesus says, no, this is a daily practice. A daily practice where through the word and through prayer, I affirm that I am a part of the king's kingdom and that his priorities are going to be my priorities and those self-oriented priorities are dead today. We do that daily. The third cost in our cost-benefit ledger is this. Kiss your possessions goodbye. Kiss your possessions goodbye. Chapter 14, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That phrase, all that he has, that comes after the word renounce, is the Greek word uparkanta, which is a word for worldly wealth. Jesus here is talking about our money and our possessions. And he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to renounce all of that. But just like when we were talking about our family and when we were talking about hating ourselves, he's not talking about us destroying all of our property. You guys should mishandle all of your property. 
You should just burn any money that comes into your hands. No, that's not what he's talking about here. Any more than we should seek to damage ourselves and damage our family. No, what is he talking about? We need to renounce our rights over our money and our possessions. We need to renounce our ownership over our money and our possessions and recognize that it all now belongs to the king. It all now belongs to the king. It all now belongs to the kingdom. Jesus says, if if you're going to be my follower, the price of being my follower is you don't own anything anymore. You've renounced all rights over it and every bit of it belongs to the king and to the kingdom at this point. Is that how you look at the resources in your possession? Do you see it as belonging to you or do you see it as belonging to the king and the kingdom? There's an easy way to check where your heart is on this. Do you ask permission from the king before you use his resources? Right? I, I, I don't use other people's stuff or other people's money without asking permission. If I see things as my own, I use it whatever way I want. But if it belongs to you, I don't use that without asking permission. I don't just go out and grab your car and take off without asking first. You might not even allow me even if I asked first. Because when it belongs to somebody else, we ask for permission. Is that where your heart is when it comes to the things that you own and the things that you have? Are you regularly asking permission and seeking the king's desires for his kingdom with what you have? When we sit down to do our budgets, that is a holy time of worship. Let me say that again. When we sit down to make out our budgets, you guys, that is a holy time of worship. As holy and righteous a time as anything else that we will experience. Because it is at that point when we are putting our budgets together, when we have opportunity to recognize this all belongs to you. I have renounced all rights. And God, now as we work through this budget prayerfully, how do you want me to use your resources and your things? Because if we're his follower, Jesus says, we don't have any more things. We don't, we don't have any money that is our own. We've renounced it all. It all belongs to him. And so a part of the cost of being a follower of Jesus is kiss your possessions goodbye. Jesus wants us to fully understand the benefits, absolutely, but also the costs of becoming his follower. When we ask others to become his followers, he wants us to make sure they fully understand the benefits, but also the costs of becoming his follower. What are those? Hate your family, kill your dreams, kiss your possessions goodbye. Is it fair to say that you're probably not going to hear this sermon by a televangelist anytime soon? Right? Uh, Joel Osteen is not going to have this outline for you, friends. Uh, Hate your family, kill your dreams, kiss your possessions. Bye. What does all of this come down to? It all comes down to the priority of Jesus, doesn't it? Isn't that what he's saying in each and every situation here? That Jesus is supposed to be such a priority in each and every part of our life that everything else pales in comparison and everything else is fully and totally submitted to him. That's what he's saying here. I've worked with so many parents 
who just want to make sure their kids see all the benefits of following Jesus so that they might quick pray a prayer and get in through the door as if that's how it works and never present to their kids the cost that Jesus says we are to be presenting. Is it any wonder that later on those kids leave Jesus and the church entirely when all they have been presented with is the benefits and never the cost? Count the cost, Jesus says. I've worked with so many churches who just want as many people in the building on a Sunday morning who therefore emphasize the benefits only week after week after week and never talk about the cost that Jesus gives us. When Jesus says, you guys, I want you to count the cost of what it means to be my follower. As you guys read through the gospel in 90 days, you recognize this isn't the only passage like this. As we're reading through the gospels, Jesus comes back to us again and again and again and says, the bar for discipleship is high, you guys. It costs you everything because I'm to be the priority in your life. It's all about me. He says it again and again and again. Give up everything in order to follow me. We're to count the cost as we consider being Jesus' follower. But you guys, I don't want to leave here today without recognizing that the scripture is also full of the benefits that go on the other side of the ledger, isn't it? It isn't just filled with the costs of being Jesus' disciple. Jesus says to become his disciple, the benefits far outweigh the costs. And I want us to recognize a few of those costs this morning. I'm going to run through them quick because I've got a number of them. But even this isn't an exhaustive list of all of the benefits that go on the benefit side of the ledger if you are a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few of these together. First, we receive God's forgiveness. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been totally and completely, undeniably forgiven of every one of your sins because of the work of Jesus Christ. Second, we receive God's care. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction. In the middle of life's craziness and pain, He is there with us, holding us in His hand. We receive God's care. We receive purpose for our lives. The great purpose that God has given to people can be ours if we are his disciples, and that is becoming like Jesus in our character. We not only gain that great purpose, but we gain the great mission with our lives, going and making more disciples who also become followers of Jesus and become like him in character. We not only receive this great mission, we enter a new family. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are now children of God and brothers and sisters with each other in this great family. Not only that, we receive the Holy Spirit who now comes and leads and guides and empowers us and seals us in Christ. Not only that, we gain a transformed life. God's Spirit comes to work in us, and as our minds are renewed, our lives are transformed through the work of the Spirit to produce the character of God in us. Not only that, we have a perfect life in the future. When He appears, we shall be like Him. Our character will match His character one day when we see Him face to face. Not only that, we'll be dwelling with 
all other people whose character match his character in this great inheritance that God has for us. Oh, shoot, I got ahead because he also has an amazing eternal inheritance for us. An inheritance that will never perish, never spoil, never fade, that's kept in heaven for us. Where we can experience God's astounding glory and majesty and celebrate it forever. Not only that, we look forward to perfect intimacy with God forever. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, listen to this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Forever God will dwell with his people in intimacy and closeness we can never experience on this earth. What an astounding time it will be of experiencing the closeness of that majestic and great God of ours. We look forward to that perfect intimacy with him. Jesus wants us to understand and tell others there is a cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But he also wants us to recognize and preach that the benefits far outweigh the costs. That the benefits are astounding and eternal. And that we look forward to that with all joy. Would you guys celebrate that in prayer with me right now? Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and your majesty. We recognize today the the call that you have made on our lives is that we give ourselves fully over to you that you're the priority in our life over each thing and everything. Lord, as we live in that this week, we ask that you'd be at work through us to impact the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.